This is Celluloid Jelly, a podcast featuring a couple of ex-video store guys who just love talking about movies. I'm CJ Talbot, and joining me as always is Cesar Alejandro Jr. from Filmsmash.com. For this episode, we're going back 20 years to the landmark science fiction action movie, The Matrix. All right, welcome back for another episode of Celluloid Jelly. Uh, this is episode 42. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, The Matrix. Uh, this 20th anniversary, 1999, right? Yeah, this year. Cool. Uh, well, I'm, I'm CJ Talbot, and, uh, you know, joining me as always is... Uh, that's, your, that's your cue right there. Cesar <laughs> uh, Alejandro, what's up, guys? How's All it going? Right. All right, we're off to a good start as usual. I'm filled with self-loathing right now. <laughs> hey, you know it's episode two of season two or episode forty-two of the show, so you know it's it's think, been a uh, while. Keeping it at forty-two sounds better. Yeah, it feels like we've accomplished something. True enough, Caesar. Uh, what have you been watching recently? Um, well, you know, to be honest, uh, towards the end of summer, it tends to be kind of like a slower period of time for me. Um, you know, busy stuff at work, but, uh, I haven't really been to the theater that much, but I did, um, just a few days ago, sit down with scary stories to tell in the dark or to read in the dark. Oh, nice. I haven't seen it yet. How was it? Um, you know, I thought it was surprisingly solid. I think, um, the first couple of teasers really kind of sold me on the film, but then a subsequent, um, like full trailer came out and I was uh, less enthused about the look of the movie. Um, but settling down for the theater, for the theater screening, I thought it was a, a pretty solid, you know, albeit PG 13 horror film. Um, of course it is, uh, produced by Guillermo del Toro. So like the visual aspects of the film are, uh, pretty great. Um, uh, but there were a lot of things I was surprised about and, uh, uh very enamored with, with, the, with the movie. Now, I, you mentioned it was a PG-13 horror movie, and I, th- I think the stigma surrounding horror films that are not R-rated is pretty silly. Um, would you well, agree? I agree. I agree. Okay. I think, that, um, it's, I think in recent years specifically, though, um, youth, youth-focused horror films definitely carry that, um, definitely carry that stigma. Um, and of course, PG thirteen is an effort to make it more um, mainstream and you know opportunity for more money. Um, well, I, I think PG thirteen people just associate it with watered down horror, and and I, it, it does happen. You know, when they take a slasher movie and PG thirteen it, and and take away the blood and the, basically the consequences of the violence. Um, you know, then I think a lot of times that doesn't work. But just because a horror movie is PG thirteen doesn't mean that they can't create great atmosphere and tell a great story. Oh, absolutely, that's absolutely true. And the source material for these uh, for this film, of course, are those um, pretty like much beloved um, horror stories, which are geared at younger younger readers. Um, they. Uh, Something I was surprised about with the film is that it's actually a period movie, which I had zero indication of um, watching the trailers, but the movie takes place in um, the late 60s. Oh, wow. I didn't know that either. 
Yeah, absolutely, right? It's yeah. <laughs> totally surprising. Um, but, like, it's it's framed around, like, um, uh, the U.S.'s entry into the Vietnam War. You know, there are TVs and radio things playing in the background that kind of, you know, Lyndon B. Johnson and, um, like, Nixon uh, on television being pretty prevalent throughout the, the entire film. I, th- I feel like those elements um, in the film are mainly to frame it but they don't really necessarily have context within the events of the film because it, you know, it's, I don't want to say it's small, but it takes place within this kind of um, little, um, little town. I can't remember where it takes place actually. Indiana maybe? That might not be right. Midwest though? Yeah. Um, there's corn, there's like, you know. Um, <laughs> there's cornfields. Yeah, there's cornfields. <laughs> there's people with like, uh, you know, yeah, really large expanses of land, I guess, so. <laughs> there's paper mills I guess <laughs> so, nice uh, but you know I thought the the kids that were in uh, um, the movie were pretty good um, the young female Lee that her name escapes me but she, her character's name is Stella was someone I thought was very good um, it does fall into a couple of um, trappings of a lot of modern horror films whereas uh, you know there's a reliance on some visual effects CG uh, that doesn't look as good but with Del Toro, he's always been one of those guys that uses a lot of prosthetics, and the elements that use prosthetics and character designs were really great. Um, the bad CG didn't really—I wouldn't say it's among the worst I've seen, you know, even within this year. But um, it does take you out of the thumb a little bit when you see it, and you know, it's yeah. very obvious which bit of CG that is, which creature. Um, but overall, you know, I thought the movie was pretty solid. It does um, leave it open for possible um, subsequent films. There are three books, if I remember correctly. Um, I don't know if the movie did well or not in terms of box office, but, you know, I'd be interested in watching uh, watching more um, how they do it. How um, many stories is, are, in the, are in the film? Uh, well, the movie is framed around, there's like a bookend story that takes place in this town, and the stories that um, people would recognize from the books are stories that get created during the run of the film. So it's not like an anthology thing, kind of like, um, was that Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, where you have like... Or like a creep uh, the show. Kid, the, the kid reading the book and separate stories or anything like that. The, you know, they occur to the characters of the film. Okay. Cool. But I'm glad you liked it. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I, I know. Um, I certainly think it's worth a watch, especially coming up to the Halloween season. I think... Uh, I'm probably going to be gearing up for for quite a bit more horror films beyond just watching horror films primarily in October this year. Yeah. I know Chelsea wants to see it, so maybe we'll end up catching that this weekend. Yeah, I recommend it. I don't don't recall what else comes out this week, so... um, Well, we're in the dog days of August. I think the the biggest movies are are out, so... But there's smaller movies that... I mean, I want to see... um, What is it? Good Boys? Mm Mm-hmm. And... I hear good things about it. Yeah. Uh, and there's there's a bunch of stuff we still haven't seen. I mean, we the last thing we saw was Hobbs and Shaw, but uh, we missed a lot of movies this summer. So we, yeah. I have a lot of catching up to do. Well, what what have you watched recently? Um, not a whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as as we discussed off air before we started recording, you know, I I'm uh, I, I'm pretty busy <laughs> these days, you know, with a lot of stuff going on. So. I uh, haven't, haven't been watching nearly as many movies, but, uh, you know, 
recently I did, um, aside from the Matrix and and just the previously mentioned Hobbs and Shaw, um, I did rewatch Zodiac, uh, David Fincher's movie, and yeah. uh, you know I really I really freaking love that movie. Um, Quite enamored, I, if I recall. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it's, it, you know, the the murder scenes are quite effective, um, and there's there's quite a few chilling moments in the film. Uh, the, the moment when Jake Gyllenhaal's in the basement, and he hears someone above him and asks if there's anybody in the house, was, like, one of those moments, like, in the theater, like, I was absolutely, like, frozen to my seat when that happened. And I think it doesn't lose anything with repeat viewings. Like, you're really, at that point in the movie... You're an hour and thirty minutes into the film, maybe a little bit more, um, and uh, and it earns that moment each time. So, but it's it's got you know it's Fincher, so you know it's got precise camera work and and you know great integration of visual effects for the the time period because it takes place in you know the the late sixties and seventies, um, and I just really I like the performances a lot. I think Downey has. Um, has rarely been better than he is in that movie. And I think Mark Ruffalo's dynamite in it. He's really, really good. Uh, and, and Gyllenhaal's good. And I, I think Gyllenhaal, you know, for, for, a, for a guy who's, you know, that age, having to sort of carry uh, the film um, and, and play a character that evolves over what is almost a decade of his life... Um, you know, I think he, I think he handles it really well. So I, I love that movie, and it's one of those movies um, like JFK, which is another movie that I absolutely adore. Uh, when you're done watching it, you feel like you've become an expert on the Zodiac killings, but it never feels like you went to school. Like you just kind of absorb it through the runtime. So I, I really like that about it. Yeah, it's been a really long while since I've seen that film. Um, I did pick up the director's cut Blu-ray maybe about a year or so ago, but it's still, of course, sealed on the shelf like so many other things. Yeah. Well, you need to crack the seal on that, baby. I love that movie. Um, it's a long running time. That's devoting a lot of, you know, for considering what I haven't watched yet. Yeah. Um, that's staring me in the face. The director's cut doesn't add a whole lot. Uh, there's a couple of notable additions, but it, the runtime's not drastically different. But the movie itself originally is fairly long, though, so... Uh, to be honest, it never feels incredibly long to me. I, th- I think it moves really well. Yeah, I was. I would agree. Um, so it's it funny you mentioned it doesn't feel long, but it is long. Yeah. So, well, you know, you have to deal with like time catching up to you once the film is over, though. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that you uh, you bought the director's cut Blu-ray because I have the director's cut HD DVD. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm well aware. <laughs> I'm sure that's come up on the show before. <laughs> I can't. I don't have an HD DVD player anymore, so I, you know, I just just hanging on to it though. Just hanging on to it as a collector. Memories, you know. Yeah, you know. Well, you know, I've been I've been buying obsolete media too. So, <laughs> hey, vinyl's not obsolete anymore. Oh well, I'm talking about obsolete like movie media, like laser discs. Well, I've been buying laser discs, but I like recently I purchased. Oh, man, I, re- I purchased a handful of Japanese VHDs. Oh, nice. Um, for, let's see, one of them was for Legend of the Eight Samurai. Um, and one was for GI Samurai. 
both of them with Sonny Chiba. Now, are those movies that are unavailable in a good quality version on Blu-ray, or was it just one of those things where you just didn't want to pass it up because of nostalgia? Well, they're, they are definitely available on DVD in high-quality editions in the United States, and they have been released on Blu-ray um, in Japan, but they're not English subtitle-friendly. Um, but honestly, I just got them because, you know, I'm a big Sunny Chiba guy, and I do enjoy those films immensely. Nice. Um, plus, you know, I mean, how often do you see v- Japanese VHDs come up as, you know, something you can add to your collection? Very rarely, I guess. But uh, yeah, there you go. Awesome. Zodiac HD DVDs. <laughs> <laughs> Showing my age. Yeah, ten years. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's move into our uh, our feature. Uh, discussion today, which is on the 1999 action science fiction epic, The Matrix. Uh, what's The Matrix about, Cesar? Oh, well, man, what is, the Ma- what is The Matrix not about? Well, you know, of course, it's the landmark film by the Wachowski starship. <laughs> um, man, like, that's kind of a big question, you know what I mean? Uh, the Matrix, you know, uh, is centered upon uh, a hacker named Neo, played by Keanu Reeves, of course. Who doesn't who do a bit of that, hacking throughout the entire movie, I might add, but yeah, go ahead. He does, he does nap, though. Um, <laughs> he does. <laughs> but uh, the film, you know, he basically... Jeez. Um, he uh, he encounters uh, uh, other, I guess, no, within the, that world, um, notable hackers, including Morpheus and Trinity, who are played by Lawrence Fishburne and uh, Carrie Ann Moss. And, and through them, he finds that the world that he believes that he lives in is not um, actual truth. Um, and that uh, they are living in what's called the Matrix, a simulation that is meant to emulate uh, human society at its uh, peak. Um, but they are not living in that time. They are actually slaves um, to machine AI which has taken over the world and now uses humans as an energy source to power their uh, uh, dominance of the of the planet. Is that, man, saying that plot out loud sounds really ridiculous. All right, all right. <laughs> I see. But, I see where you're going there. But that's what the Matrix is about. That's true. That's true. And hopefully, the our conversation today will 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 capture some of the other aspects of it as yeah, well. No promises, though. Else. <laughs> so yeah, this this is from the Wachowskis uh, or Wachowskis. I think it's Wachowskis, but you know, tomato tomato. Um, formerly Andy and Larry, uh, now Lily and Lana, um, and I think you know, just starting off the conversation, you know, like. Uh, you know, one of the things about this movie, it's got that aspect of uh, representation. Um, and, you know, these characters, uh, when they go into the Matrix, are able to uh, present themselves in as their ideal persona. You know, so, like, the way they look in the real world isn't necessarily how they look in the Matrix. Um, and, I, and I think that that's... Um, has been a theme that has kind of run through uh, their work, um, you know, including uh, Cloud Atlas and the Sensate series on Netflix as well. Um, 
the character of Switch was originally supposed to switch gender um, and become... Uh, a, it was either a man in the real world and a woman in the Matrix or vice versa. Um, and they, they niched that at the last minute. Um, I, I'm not sure why, to be honest. Uh, but I, I read that, uh, that that's the reason her name is Switch in the movie, because she was supposed to switch genders going in the Matrix. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I imagine that... You know, I don't think there was anything necessarily behind the idea to nix that um, idea. Uh, it could have been just simply to, you know, for ease of the audience. Because the movie, um, at the time, introduced a lot of complicated ideas to the mainstream. Um, I don't think the movie itself is very difficult to understand or comprehend. But uh, I definitely recall around the time the film being released that people weren't 100% sure about the plot, necessarily. Yeah. Or how, you know, the meaning of it all. Um, and I think having a character um, appear differently, even someone who's supporting an ancillary um, uh, in, in a limited role, would add confusion to it. So they kept the character look from like the real world to the Matrix world the same, probably just just for ease of comprehension. I assume so. Yeah, de- that's definitely possible. It's also possible that they just really liked the actress and was like, you know what, we're just not going to recast because we want more of her on screen. Um, the climate in 1999, you know, when this movie came out, this, this movie really came under the radar. Um, I, you know, I'm sure you remember, but I, there was buzz surrounding the movie because they, the studio kept talking about how revolutionary it was going to be and and the visuals of the film. But really, you know, 1999, that was the return of Star Wars, like, mm-hmm. that was supposed to be the biggest thing in the world that year. And it was. I mean, The Phantom Menace was a huge cultural uh, moment. Uh, but, you know, The Matrix, if I'm not mistaken, came out in March, which was two months earlier than the Star Wars movie. Um, and I remember seeing an early screening of this movie, courtesy of our, our buddy Kevin um, from Allied, and, uh, and was really blown away by it. And, you know, I remember going back to uh, to work at Suncoast and just telling everybody that they had to freaking see this movie because it was just dynamite. Um, and I, I it, it really it really shook the pillars of Hollywood, I think, at that time. And, and I, like you said, it introduced a lot of like big concept ideas, which was not common for a blockbuster movie, you know, at that time. It really it's really not that common now either. But we've seen other films like Inception and. And things like that come out that have also kind of tackled larger scale philosophy in blockbuster movies. Um, yeah, but this was kind of uh, a- as big a film as we think of it now uh, because of how, how much money it made and how, how well the sequels did. It, it kind of blindsided people at the time. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. Uh, that's, this is not a film I actually saw in the theater. I was in... Uh... So I was a freshman in high school at the time, but uh, actually, interesting note: um, I saw this on VHS originally. I think so. I remember um, buying it at Suncoast um, from the widescreen section on VHS before I started working there. Wow, nice! Yeah, I, so, I, yeah. I remember when when the VHS and, and DVD came out. Um, so I had that those Warner Brothers like flip fold covers like the cardboard covers that had the plastic backing 
Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It had some pretty good special features. You know, it's funny. Um, we, I, we, rem- I remember, like, the Matrix DVD busting DVD players, too. Yeah. <laughs> a, bit of, a bit of nostalgia. Really? <laughs> you don't remember that? It didn't bust mine, but it's something that happened to a lot of uh, lower-level DVD players. I, I, um, I don't remember that. But, uh, yeah, the Matrix DVD had uh, information on it that if you had, like, maybe, like, a, you know, second or third tier level DVD player, a lot of times it would bust DVDs, DVD player um, machines. And I, re- I recall a number of people, you know, returning the Matrix DVD because it wouldn't work under player. Um, but it was because their player wasn't good enough to handle it. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's funny. Oh, man, I forgot about that. Now that you say no. that, I do kind of remember the returns that surrounded the release of it and everything, but, oh, wow. <laughs> Framing it between, like, you know, the man-on-the-ground level <laughs> perspective, so. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, that's not something, I mean, I, I, even, I even remember, like, seeing, like, a news article about it on, like, local television at the time. Yeah. So, yeah. Not only did the Matrix blow minds, it blew electronics, too. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, that so, could have been better. <laughs> I thought make it, sure, make sure, make sure you edit that pause between my the end of my joke and your laugh to make it shorter. Okay, I'll actually make it longer now. <laughs> <laughs> Even more awkward. Uh, <laughs> so this this was a sort of a genre mashup that was kind of new for America, at least. And you can maybe talk about um, the Asian influences in the film. But um, you know this movie heavily influenced by uh, by kung fu movies um, as well as Japanese anime, uh, you know American science fiction, um, you know design wise stuff like H.R. Geiger. I mean, there's really a lot of stuff going on in this movie, and that's partially why it's just such an exciting film. Um, even now, you know, like rewatching it, um, I think it holds up incredibly well. You know. Um, did you watch it I on think, Blu-ray? No, actually, I don't own a Blu-ray of this film. That's funny, um, me either. I watched it on DVD. I, I own that 10-disc DVD set that came with uh, a Neo Bust from McFarland Studios. Oh, with the big acrylic case and everything. Yeah, it kind of yeah. looks like a like a disc tower kind yeah. of a thing. Um, so I watched it on that. And, uh, you know, uh, the film, you said it holds up, but I think the film does, um, which I think is interesting. I mean, of course, it's to be expected, that the visual effects don't look nearly as good as they did 20 years ago. Um, the effects work looks better towards the last half of the movie than it does at the beginning. Um, the opening sequence, of course, is like uh, the introduction to Trinity and the agents and um, kind of like their first opening action scene. There are bits of that, um, particularly, I guess, like when Trinity does like a dive off of the building that look kind of rough. Um, but I think overall, that's pretty much the only element that I think kind of like bothered me in terms of like cg not holding up the rest of it does look pretty pretty well uh well aged i'd say yeah i mean that's i think i think you're right i can see that definitely like for me like i think because of the computerized world that they inhabit in the film uh some of the i I think that kind of like uh how do i want to say like it, it it sort of justifies the the almost aged look of the early CG in the film as well, um, 
But the bullet time sequences, like when you mentioned the opening scene, which I want to come back to because I think that that is a, I, I think that's about as good a setup any movie's ever had. Um, but uh, like when Trinity like jumps up into that pose and we see bullet time for the first time, man, like I just remember seeing that in the theater. I, I think that was in the trailers as well, like the TV commercials and stuff for the film, like that moment where she like jumps up and pauses. Um, but when the camera starts to pan 180 degrees around her, like um, because those, that bullet time, they changed for the, the later sequels in the, in the franchise, but in the original movie, they were using uh, still cameras. Yeah, so, it was like a rotating shutter. Yeah, thing, yeah. Right? So, um, and, and I, I, to be honest, I think that's why that, that shot in particular like really holds up and looks... Look, I thought it looked amazing when I rewatched it earlier. Um, so, like, I, I, visually speaking, like, I, I think this movie is, is just you know, pure gasoline on a fire. I mean, just it really just explodes on the screen for me. I don't know. <laughs> I do remember, um, now, necessarily past that age where they do things like this, but I do remember when The Matrix came out, there were a number of making of um, movie specials on television, on the sci-fi channel specifically. And I remember doing behind the scenes, seeing behind the scenes stuff of them doing the bullet time. Um, that scene, as well as the, um, I guess, the rotating gun scene in the subway between um, Hugo Weaving and Keanu Reeves, I think, were elements that they showed, like the camera, um, the shutter um, rotating around them. Yeah. The camera, multiple cameras um, photographing in sequence. Um, now, when I was younger, I used to see making of movies on television all the time. Um, but I feel like that might have been like one of the last times I ever saw anything like that. Um, so I guess the Matrix also, you know, kind of heralded in this um, kind of like groundbreaking tech uh, tech in film, um, but it also kind of like marked the end of you know maybe not classic Hollywood, but uh, you know um, I don't know what I'm trying to say. Why? Well, <laughs> uh, like, go ahead. You no, know, yeah, you know, I'm still trying to articulate it. Yeah, so. I, well, I I think what what how I'm going to come off of that comment, I guess, is like, I think the closest thing to watching this movie in 1999 in the theater, the, the closest thing I can think of, um, for, for people, um, would be like when they first saw Jurassic Park or when they first saw Star Wars, or maybe when they first saw 2001 a Space Odyssey, if you want to go back even further. But I, I mean, like, uh, that bullet time stuff kind of like really um, for me is like seeing that walking dinosaur the first time. It's like seeing that spaceship come over the camera in at the opening scene of star Wars. You know, it's just, it's something that really awes you. Um, yeah. And it's, you know, your, I mean, it's beyond your comprehension, comprehension at the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, because it was unique at the time and no one had done anything like it. And, um, and it was just, it was pushing something further, you know, like a lot, a lot of people tried to duplicate and still duplicate, you know, the, the type of action scenes in the matrix, you know, like a lot of Zack Snyder's movies come to mind, you know, and I don't, I'm not throwing Zack Snyder under the bus. A lot of other people do it as well. Um, 
you know, but like this, the ripple effect from this movie into the way that we visualize action scenes in big budget Hollywood movies now, uh, you know, like it, it can't be under understated or overstated. Can't be underestimated. How's that? <laughs> um, yeah, I think so. That's true. I mean, like, you think about, like, you know, we mentioned earlier, this is a 20-year-old film. Um, there's tons of people um, who probably work in industry now who, you know, would cite this film as a major influence in, like, their work or, you know, people who either saw it when they were young or, you know, burgeoning, um, you know, freshman professionals. Um, you know, it should be noted that, uh, you know, you know, the director of the John Wick franchise, Chad Stahelski, he was Keanu Reeves' stunt double on this film. Yep. Um, so, like, there, you could certainly, I wouldn't say, um, you know, John Wick heralds, like, a different type of action than the sci-fi, you know, elaborated um, that you see in the Matrix um, films. Um, but, you, obviously, you know, those the John Wick films feature Lawrence Fishburne and... Um, uh, Keanu Reeves in it, so you you could tell how big a how important this film was, at least to, you know, that director who's kind of blown up in the last couple couple years. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, so watching it this time, what are the things that kind of struck you about it? You know, why why do you think this movie is really endured? Uh, you know, aside from being a technical achievement. Okay, uh, I'd say timing uh, probably played a big part in it. Um, being released at the end of the end of the millennia, I mean, there, there's a lot of things that um, that kind of mark it as a 1990s film. Um, you know, from the clothing, the music, um, you know, these type of things aren't unique in that you know, clothing and music um, will typically date a film instantly. Um, but the film also carries itself maybe a, a weird timelessness to it. Um, in particular, we, we mentioned the opening scene. Um, you know, the, the cops in there, they're like their uniforms and their caps. They look like, you know, they're from like 1950s or 1960s era police uniforms, like yeah. something, that, you know, something like Danny Aiello would wear like once upon a time in America. Yeah. There's a very generic quality to the city and everything about the city in the matrix. Um, yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's very similar to kind of like the Batman, the animated series, which has, um, uh, kind of, uh, lost in time quality to it. It's like modern Gothic, you know, there are, you know, handheld telephones. There are cell phones that exist and other more modern recognizable technology, but you know, everything, you know, there's a lot of cables in it, you know, cords, um, physical landlines. Um, it feels, um, I don't want to say retro, but it feels like, um, well, well worn, but not obsolete. Yeah. Well, I think you mentioned the landlines and stuff. I, I think this film was made, in that transitional period of time where cell phones were a thing, but people had not abandoned, you know, the old technology yet. So I think there's a good mix of that. Um, but you're right. There's sort of like a classic feel to a lot of it. Like the car they drive around in is like a, like a, like a 60s Thunderbird or something like that. Like I'm not, I'm not a car expert, but that's kind of what it looks like to me. Yeah, um, I'm not sure. So. Yeah. So and and yeah, the city is sort of very generic, and like the the police uniforms just say police. They don't have a name of a city. The phone booths just say phone booth. Um, you know, so they're very careful not to to date it. And I think that was probably the intention. I don't think it was that they didn't want to name the city. I think they just didn't want to date the film. 
isn't the city called like Mega City or or something like that? I don't know. But I I don't know. I mean, we both just rewatched it, and if it doesn't stick out to either of us, it's probably not a thing. Yeah. Um. But uh, I was really struck by the look of the film, and uh, the cinematography was by Bill Pope, um, uh, who was uh, tremendous. And he's worked with Edgar Wright as well, right? Yes, I believe so. Um, you know, so, you know, I, I'm a big fan of his work with, uh, with the Wachowskis. I'm a big fan of his work with Edgar Wright. Uh, I'm pretty sure he did Hot Fuzz and uh, Scott Pilgrim. And might, yes. might have done he might have done all of Edgar Wright's movies. I'm not sure, but I, I'm I'm 99 sure. You know, I'm not looking at IMDb right now, kids. So, yeah, uh, but I'm, I'm pretty sure Scott Pilgrim definitely is one he's worked on. Yeah, um, the beginning of the film definitely has um, comic book influence with the panels uh, when after like Trinity has her encounter with the police and is making her break for it. Um, there are a number of scenes where you see. Uh, the agents like turning, um, you know, just just beyond corners or buildings and alleyways and shadow shadow use that very much so seems like ripped out of a comic book, you know, out of a Batman comic, honestly. Yeah, well, it's it's funny you mentioned comics because I, I you mentioned behind the scenes stuff earlier as well, and I found like a twenty minute HBO making of the Matrix on YouTube and just watched that yesterday, um, and. They showed a bunch of storyboards, and they it was just incredible. Like, the storyboards looked like they were pulled right out of a comic book. They were not, like, sketches. It was artwork. Um, black and white, no color, but, I mean, l- literally it looked like they were flipping through a comic book. It didn't look like storyboards. So, like, they carefully planned all of this out um, So in such detail. Uh, that that I, I was I was amazed at the quality of the storyboards, and I think you know, I think that shows in the film, um, you know the the cinematography has such precise compositions, like you mentioned, that uh, you know it's it's easy, you know to to kind of see how that affected the film. Yeah, well, this was like their first major budget film. You know, they the Wachowskis had of course done Bounds, I guess uh, a year or two earlier. Yeah. That one's a pretty but, good um, little movie. Yeah. Um, so, but this is definitely a film that's on a, diff, a whole other scale. Um, and with a film using um, high concept, um, I could imagine them wanting to plan it out meticulously. Yeah, absolutely. Well, apparently they had to in order to actually sell the idea of directing the film themselves because they didn't actually have a whole lot of experience. And when they went to Joel Silver originally... And so they wanted to direct this. He was very hesitant, and he's the one who suggested that they find something else to do first. So they had brought this to him before they did Bound. You know, Joel Silver is is one of the big '80s. Uh, you know, he's still a big producer now, but he was one of the big '80s producers. He produced like the Lethal Weapon movies and stuff like that. So, yep. um, and Silver Pictures has done you know a lot of really really good action movies. Uh, and, and he helped shepherd this thing through, um, you know, to his credit, you know, he saw what they wanted to do and, you know, took a chance on them. Uh, and, you know, apparently Warner Brothers um, got a, a huge tax break by shooting it in Australia. And the first movie only cost them about $60 million to make, which seems insane to me uh, because of how good it looks. I think uh, you, you also saved quite a bit because of... Uh... You know, I guess Keanu Reeves, you know, 
I wouldn't say like his star was dying, but like um, he was certainly not like commanding like the kind of budgets that he does now, or the kind of salary he does now. Um, oh, absolutely. And have, yeah, and you have people like you know Hugo Weaving, who you know um, I'm a major fan of these days specifically, but virtual unknown. Carrie Ann Moss is the same. Lawrence Fishburne, I guess he was he was an actor who. Um, worked consistently, but I, I doubt he had any kind of real, you know, name recognition, at least mainstream. Well, I think, uh, you know, back before The Matrix, uh, Lawrence Fishburne had been working pretty steadily, though. I mean, he'd been in a, yeah. in a bunch mean, of stuff yes. like Deep Cover with Ellen Barkin. and um, But yeah, you're right. It's, it's not like a... Too, though, right? Yeah, it's not like a huge show. A-list cast. You're right. So they, they probably saved some money on casting. Yeah, but yeah, sixty million sounds crazy, especially considering like the kind of budgets these films, uh, films like this, would command. Or even if you just look at the Matrix sequels, the kind of budgets that those films had um, only like what four years later. So. Yeah, and and uh, I mean, I I don't want to get into the the quality of those movies, but visually speaking, I don't think they hold up as well as this movie. Um, and okay. a lot of that well, has to do with like them abandoning the the physical camera bullet time and moving into more CGI. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, we could table this for another discussion later on. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, I, I'm one of the people who does uh, kind of enjoy the second and third Matrix films, and uh, yeah, I think it's fortuitous so. that we chose to do the Matrix movies, the, the first Matrix film for this after, you know, they just made an announcement two days ago. Yeah, um, that they're gonna do a Matrix Four, so you know. So, yeah, you know, well, hopefully, Nice Guys Two will get announced sometime soon. Yeah, I had heard that they were developing something Matrix related for the last like year or so, um, and it kept popping up in the trades as a rumor. Uh, but for them to like to announce that they've greenlit a fourth movie and that they got Lana Wachowski, Carrie Ann Moss, and Keanu Reeves back. That, that was a huge piece of news, and and uh, you know I promise you guys that we that we had already scheduled to watch the Matrix and record this, you know, before that announcement came. Yeah, well, make sure you edit this quick and then get it out, so because everyone else is going to be doing Matrix like you know reappraisals. Yeah, well, it'll be out on it's every Monday, every Monday. Fingers <laughs> crossed. <laughs> um. What else struck you uh, about about the film on this viewing? Well, um, I think uh, for a lot of people, I mean, this is going to go veering into an area of more of my expertise, I guess. Um, a lot of people look at this film, and one of the things that stands out about it are the action scenes. You know, you mentioned earlier that they're very like martial arts and anime inspired. Um, of course, the um, the martial arts choreographer for the film is a guy named Yoon Wu Ping, um, who is. A legend in terms of like uh, uh, directing in Hong Kong action, choreography, and things like that. Um, oh yeah, I definitely don't think that like choreographers are as well known in the United States, um, but a lot of people would, you know, are more likely to know his name, even if they wouldn't necessarily know the films that he worked on. Sure. Well, um, of course. I mean, definitely the for the Matrix and Crouching Tiger, um, Yuan mm-hmm. Wuping is, is definitely known uh, in this country. In the years since then, there's been a, a number of um, you know higher profile martial arts films that feature you know either extreme action or or um, exaggerated action. Somewhere in between, the Matrix kind of falls in between. 
the rawness of other films, particularly things like like Ongbok films um, with Tony Jaa or like the Raid films, or um, they settle for more of a like a realism or harder hitting, more physical um, kind of look to it. Uh, this film, going back, because I probably probably been close to ten years since I'd sit down and watched this film, but the I was really surprised to see how well the fight scenes hold up. Um, they excel in their choreography and um, the efforts of Keanu Reeves, his stunt double Hugo weaving, um, in order to sell the moves. And I think you know the fight scenes are well choreographed. The camera steps back, lets you see full frames. It embellishes the strong hits. Um, in terms of action, it holds up extremely well. It's much better than a lot of modern action action films that you know. You know I don't want to. You know, some shaky cam works. A lot of it doesn't, especially in modern action scenes. But it does a uh, um, a big disservice to like the choreographer. And I think the Wachowskis, being fans themselves of martial arts films and such, I don't think they would have chosen Wu Ping to work on the film if they didn't have respect for his craft and were aware of what he could do. And uh, that's something I found myself really appreciating um, in the review for this for this recording. Yeah. Well, apparently he had turned it down. Um initially and then they they sent him the script uh, and he liked the script and so they met uh, met again and uh, apparently he asked for um full control over the fight scenes which he thought he wouldn't get and and an exorbitant amount of or what he thought was an exorbitant amount of money and they they met all of his demands so he couldn't say no <laughs> well speaking about like turning it down you know um Will Smith of course was uh is pretty famous for having turned down the role for Neo in this film. Yeah. Um, something that's a little less known is that Chow Yun-Fat was originally offered the role for Morpheus, as I believe. Um, uh, Sean Connery was approached for Morpheus as well. So, you know, the Chow Yun-Fat element uh, really reminds me of how, you know, I don't know how true it is, but I'd heard that um, Toshiro Mifune was offered the role for Obi-Wan in the original Star Wars film. Um, uh, he, he George Lucas wanted Toshiro Mifune. Uh, right. The studio nixed that, though. He he was not a big enough name for them. Yeah. Red Sun didn't do enough money. I guess, I guess not. <laughs> 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 but you know, Alec Guinness was like you know a hot box office item. So yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you know, it's always interesting to wonder you know what could have been, right? Yeah. Speaking of Alec Guinness, like uh, not to derail our Matrix conversation, but it, another another <laughs> I know another piece of news from the past week was that they are developing an Obi Wan uh, series for Disney Plus, and they're negotiating yeah. with Ewan McGregor to come back as Obi Wan Kenobi. So you know, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, tomorrow, uh, you know, of course tomorrow is D twenty three. I wouldn't be surprised if you have some kind of announcement. Um, yeah. You know, it'd probably just be a bit of John Williams music set over, like, you know, a title card or something. But uh, I expect a lot of buzz to, to explode this weekend. Well, apparently they, they were developing it as a movie originally, and Stephen Daltrey was, was coming in as a director. But that is that version of it got scrapped. But they're taking some of that and moving it into whatever this project ends up being. But I, I yeah, hope... Especially if they're doing shorter-run television series, like seems to be the case with the Marvel um um, television programs. Yeah, I think most of the Marvel shows are going to be six episodes. Yep. Um, so you know, I, I I think that's I think that's a good a good length. Um, you know, I just hope they call it Old Ben Kenobi. 
<laughs> instead of Obi-Wan. They should call it Ben. Ben Ben Kenobi. Gentle Ben. No, not Gentle Ben. <laughs> Fierce fighting Ben Kenobi. <laughs> Before the white hair came in. Just around the river, Ben? Yeah, I... I since it's been established that he's not really like helping the rebels in in the original Star Wars, I, I hope it's like an equalizer type situation where he just kind of like, you know, wanders around Tatooine, and when he sees something that's, you know, that's not good, he fixes it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, in some of the comic books, um, there are some stories of him, um, like he leaves a journal to Luke uh, about like times that he, you know, behind the scenes helped out like his aunt and uncle. Uh, as well as you know, saving Luke without without their foreknowledge. Yeah. Yeah. I, so, I, you know, it's a dangerous planet, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I actually think it could be an interesting show. So I'm, you know, I'm very much looking forward to it. And I think Ewan was the probably the best thing about the prequels. So uh, I would be, you know, very excited for him to return as Obi Wan Kenobi. Hmm. I mean, old yeah, Ben. Yeah. I've always liked them in those <laughs> films. So. All right, we can go. We can get back to the Matrix now. Good. <laughs> okay, so we were talking about. Uh, well, we were talking about Yu and Wu Ping. Yes. Okay. And then that, well, I said my piece. What did you think about that, the action scenes? Uh, I think the action scenes are terrific, and I, to be honest, you know that I was like, you know, I'd seen a handful of martial arts movies, um, but uh, you know, back in '99, uh, I. I by no means uh, was fluent in Hong Kong cinema or, or, or anything like that. So, uh, you know, the action scenes felt fresh uh, and vibrant and dynamic to me. Um, you know, I, I think it, it doesn't overdo the wire work. And yeah, the, they spent apparently four months training the actors uh, with like Kung Fu boot camp, you know, like basically every day, you know, going through and choreographing and working out. And I think it really shows. I think, uh, I think, well, Keanu, we've seen him since then do a lot more fight scenes and gun scenes and stuff. So I think he's really kind of taken that training that he got from Matrix and, and has really kind of like put that to good use in the second half of his career. Um, but like Lawrence Fishburne, I thought, was really, really good in the fight scenes too. Yeah, I think so. Uh, Hugo um, Weaving, and this is probably purposeful, looks a bit robotic with his movements. Everything looks mechanical to me. Um, yeah, he's got a very straightforward fighting style, whereas um, I guess Keanu's uh, kind of evolves. Into, it evolves, you know, he's got the downloaded info, but like he adapts, so which is obviously a very kind of like clear nod to like the Bruce Lee, Jeet Kune Do kind of mythology. Right. Methodology. You know, everything from, like, the nose flick to, like, you know, the, the beckoning beckoning yeah. finger call. Yeah. So. That that scene in particular where Neo and Morpheus fight in the training dojo, um, I think they do a good job of, like, showing you a bunch of different styles also. Mm-hmm. So. Well, I mean, there's there's a visual language that exists in a lot of fight scenes. Uh, you, you and Wu Ping definitely uses it well, um, even going back to, like, his 70s and 80s era films, um, that a lot of people like, don't necessarily notice um when they're just looking at feisty because you know in many cases you know a front kick will look the same as a front kick you know whether you're from china japan you know the united states germany or whatever um but like you know i'm sure you're familiar with the idea of like animal styles or different 
different techniques or whatever. Sure, I've seen um, Kung Fu Panda. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. That's a good example. <laughs> but like they're the visual language that they use in telling the action um, and portraying like, you know, either ability, you know, um, increase in ability or adaptation. You know, I think he uses that in this film, maybe not to the same degree as maybe like his work with like Jackie Chan or Jet Li, but um, you know, it, it exists very clearly. Um, you know, if, if it's something that you're able to um, appreciate, you know, even going back, not, at, not necessarily at the first, first viewing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wanna I wanna go back to um, our discussion about the opening scene of the film. Okay. Because um, I, I took a couple of notes. I really I really admire how this movie is set up. Um, I personally, uh, it's as good at setting up the characters and the world as you can expect. I think um, because there's a lot going on. So it, it sets up the character of Cipher. Um, and Trinity and introduces the idea of Morpheus it introduces you to the agents and specifically um, the different dynamic between the other two agents and Smith Um, you know it alludes to the fact that they are watching or protecting over someone you know uh, who is Neo Um, you know, it's uh, the the physics of the world is established, and the idea that all these like almost supernatural things can occur is really tightly scripted. The visuals are precise and carefully thought out. Um, you know, I, I I think I mean it's just dynamite. Like the action, I think it is good. I think the special effects in it hold up really well. Uh, I think the the cinematography by Bill Pope, uh, it's. It's dark, high contrast lighting, so it, it feels very sort of like noirish in a way, which of course you know hits hits me in the sweet spot, um, you know. But like, yeah, like I don't, I think it, I personally like, I think it's an all timer, like as as far as like just perfectly constructed opening scenes. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, like everything from like that first uh, that first bit of um, dialogue at the beginning of the film to you know, um, Trinity kind of like disappearing in the phone, in the phone booth, it sets up the questions you want to ask. Um, and then it, it definitely primes you for like the rest of the film, I'd say. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think, uh, I think it's really cool. Like the, the, like it's not really a nine one one call, but the phone call that Trinity and Cypher sh- uh, share at the beginning, um, he says something like you weren't supposed to relieve me. And, uh, and she was like, uh, you know, are you sure this line is clean? And so, like, later we find out that Cypher is the turncoat. But, uh, but that scene kind of, like, gives us a little bit of foreshadowing to that. Um, He's the insider. Right. Yeah. And, and looking in hindsight, he didn't think it was Trinity that they were sending the agents after. So I don't know who it would have been. Maybe it would have been Morpheus, but it kind of alludes to the fact that this was sort of a test. So, like, him informing the agents that somebody was going to be there at that time is the reason he gets the meeting and the deal later when he's sitting there eating steak with Agent Smith. Yep. By the way, that steak looks fucking amazing. (laughs) Well, in in terms of, like, uh, you know, food, uh, it does look pretty great. And the way Pantoliano, like, eats it, 
you know. Joey Pants. Uh, he's, he savors it, you know. But it's right up there with um, the steak that Tommy Lee Jones eats in Captain America, the first Avenger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a pretty good-looking steak. Yeah, absolutely. Tall, tall glass of milk with it, too. So. I, I was watching it on an empty stomach earlier, and it made me very hungry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the Matrix, like, you know... Gives you gut reactions, I guess, in many ways. Yeah, yeah. I think, like, script-wise, you know, um, I I noticed something on this viewing, and I, I'm sure I, I'm sure I kind of noticed that it was, you know, on previous viewings. But it's been a while since I've seen this. Um, but there's a real kind of uh, nice, clean symmetry to the way the movie opens and the way the movie closes. Uh, the opening of the film, you get the phone call, and Trinity is at the heart of the city hotel, and it's one character, it's Trinity, and she's running away and fleeing from agents. She runs out of the hotel from the upper floors to the ground floor. At the end of the movie, uh, Neo is fleeing agents, and he goes from the ground floor to the upper floors of the hotel. And it's, third floor. Yeah. And then it's the heart of the city hotel. And then the very end of the movie, there's a phone call. Like, it, it's kind of like bookended in, in like with mirror scenes like that. Like, I think that's really cool. I don't think I realized that initially. Yeah. That he does a Superman thing at the phone booth at the end. Yes, he does. Yeah. Well, he doesn't change, but, you know. He doesn't, he's got a big N on his chest for Neo. <laughs> Neo, which is an anagram of one. Oh, I thought it was like Eno, like Brian Eno. <laughs> I, I, I noticed a lot of like little things on this viewing, like uh, like um, Thomas Anderson's apartment is one hundred and one, so like it's all ones and zeros, digital, like that sort of uh-huh. stuff. So so like there's you know there's a lot of thought put into like the the minutia and the details of the film, you know. I, I love that Switch calls Neo Copper Top as a uh, as sort of like a slur, um, because he's still plugged into the system. So he he's a, basically a battery. And then Morpheus, when he's explaining how the world works, literally has like a Duracell battery in his hand, which they call the Copper Top. So like I kind of like how those kind of you know link up. <laughs> We haven't quite talked about like the philosophy of the film a little bit, and you know that's a subject that could probably take like a whole whole, whole episode with more um, more in depth like discussion. Yeah. But uh, um, one of the things I really like about it is, um, I guess uh, during the jump program and you know li- human limitations, you know it's the idea of your mind limiting limiting you. Um, so they they use the phrase freeing your mind as a way of you know. I don't know, uh, reaching enlightenment, so to speak. Right. Um, but I think, you know, that's, that's a really nice, I think it's a really nice sentiment about like, you know, possibility, human limits and, you know, um, potential. So I think, you know, I think for me, I think that's a very interesting idea to kind of, to kind of tackle in, uh, you know, a, a movie about like, Human oppression, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> weird, I, like cool action scenes. Absolutely, and other films have kind of used similar um, similar themes as well. Of like, 
you know, like breaking free of the system and becoming your own person, you know, like the power of the individual versus society and things like that. Um, and I, I think this movie does it really well. Um, you know, I mean, uh, you, you know, people have been saying for, I don't, I, God knows how long the science has been around, but that humans only use less than 10% of their brains. You know, I think it was 4% like originally, and now they're saying it's more, um, you know, but the idea that our potential uh, exceeds, you know, what our reality is, has been around for a long time. And I think that that's, you know, um, I, I think it's, I think it's a good thing to include as, as part of this story. And I also think that you're right, that it's, that's a nice sentiment, you know, and, and something for, for us, you know, in our own lives to kind of like, you know, to realize that, that that potential exists to, yeah. to do more. You know, you're, you're not necessarily stuck where you are. You, you have the capability of changing your circumstance. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's that line that's early on in the film where um, Morpheus uh, and Neo meet, and he asks, you know, do you believe in fate? And Neo just says, uh, I'm going to, I'm sure I'm not going to say it exactly, but he says no, um, because I don't like the idea of not being able to make my own choices. Right. And then, you know, that's perfect le- leeway into like Morpheus says, you know, I know exactly what you mean. Which yeah. is, you know, um, that, t- that whole scene actually I quite like immensely. Yeah, I, well, I, I think, you know, one of the things that, um, that this film was criticized for, I think, when it first came out, and I didn't pull any reviews or anything, was that it is a little talky in places. I, I think that gets balanced out by the action scenes, though. Um, so for me, it's not an issue. But apparently the studio, when they got the first draft of the script, uh, they were like, we don't understand anything that's going on. You have to explain things. So they had to add a lot of exposition. So I think some of those scenes between Morpheus and Neo may not have been as elaborate uh, or as lengthy uh, as they, you know, as they were in the original script. So, I think it works for the film, though. Like, I mean, like that's your introduction to Lord to Morpheus um, in in the flesh, and I think when you see his uh, his performance, it's very measured, um, it's very deliberate. It's like uh, you know, there's a scripted quality to it. Like he knows that he's done it. He's probably done this, you know, hundred times with other people that that he's you know freed or planned to free. Um, and, you know, even though Neo is, you know, the big catch in terms of what Morpheus has been looking for the whole time, um, you know, he's, he's a practice pro at it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, we're running out of time, so we're going to need to wrap it up, but you got anything else? Mm, Why don't you go first? Come back to me later. (laughs) (laughs) No, well, I, you know, I mean, I, I, I sent you a list of, of a handful of movies, um, you know, that were potential for this episode. And, uh, and I was really, um, a little bit surprised that you wanted to jump in and revisit the matrix, but I was kind of delighted and I'm, I'm glad we got a chance to rewatch it. Um, you know, I, I think I told you before we started recording that I did watch it back in March, I think it was. Earlier this year, you said, yeah. Yeah, February or March, somewhere in there. Um, and, uh, and I, and I really, I really was surprised, uh, how well it holds up and how much I, I still really enjoyed the movie, you know? And I think, um, you know, when you, when you look at what Keanu has been able to do over his career and, and all the, not flubs or flops, but 
you know, he's made a lot of movies that have kind of gone unnoticed. But he always seems to, every five years or so, like, pop up with, like, a big action movie. You know, reinvent himself somehow, yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, like, he had Point Break, and then he had Speed, and then there was a big lull, uh, you know, where he tried to do a bunch, to his credit, tried to do a bunch of different things. Uh, and Shakespeare. Yeah, and not a lot of that stuff really panned out for him. Uh, you know, I'm sure he got something out of it, and, and you know, um, some of those movies, I'm sure, are, you know, are good, but uh, it didn't do a whole lot for his career, you know, and then, bam, The Matrix was like, you know, a, a shot in the arm for him, and then now he's got the John Wick series, he's going back to The Matrix again, so, you know, I think when you look back at his career, you're you're going to, I mean, he's sort of almost defined American action movies over the last 20 years. Yeah, he's perennial. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and so, you know, that that's something that I guess, it, it's not that I didn't know that already, but it was something that, you know, really kind of came to the forefront of my mind as a result of rewatching this. Uh, kind of what where his place is uh, amongst other action stars uh, and, and in the legacy of, of Hollywood action movies. And I, I think... You know, I, I think he's cemented as one of the one of the great modern action heroes. Yeah, definitely. I think he's also kind of changed what you know. I mean, he started doing. I mean, Point Break was what nineteen ninety one or so ninety two. Um, but like you know, before that, you know, the eighties action star was Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger, huge muscled men. Um, and Keanu Reeves, you know, he, he's definitely changed that. He helped know? change that along with like uh, Bruce Willis. Yeah, yeah sure. And now we get yeah, now we have now we get Matt like Matt Damon, Damon and, and Chris uh, Evans all these and, other like svelte like <laughs> action stars and well now uh, action movies are all superhero movies and the Matrix yeah. kind of falls into that the Matrix is a superhero movie it's just not yeah. based on a comic book that's true all right so you got any final thoughts uh, about the Matrix yeah um, no I don't know like uh, you know maybe maybe they'll I'll think of something and. I'll pop it up on the group for discussion on Facebook, but uh, yeah, I don't know if I have any closing thoughts on the film. I mean, I really like I really like the film. It's it was great to revisit it. I mentioned I hadn't seen it in probably close to ten years at this point, but uh, yeah, I was happy. I was happy I chose this as well. Awesome, cool. Uh, well, let's wrap it up then. Uh, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me, of course, at filmspash.com or on Twitter at Junior Beho. And you, CJ. Uh, you can find me at Setting the Frame on Twitter, and uh, you can also find me on Letterboxd. And the, you can find me on the Celluloid Jelly page on Facebook as well. Cool. Um, thank you, Cesar, for your time today. Yeah. Thank you, CJ. And thank all of you for listening. All right. And we'll see you next week. See you. Bye. Celluloid Jelly was recorded using Google Hangouts, mixed using Apple's GarageBand software, and hosted by Podbean. For any inquiries related to Celluloid Jelly, please email settingtheframe at gmail.com.